Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson, co-host of CBS This Morning. When House Speaker Tip O'Neill retired, columnist Mark Shields wrote about a favorite story O'Neill used to tell about himself. It featured a wealthy couple who had stroked a check carrying a number of zeros for the honor of joining the veteran politician at lunch. This wasn't malfeasance, mind you. They donated to a Boston Symphony fundraiser, and O'Neill was the prize. On the appointed day, writes Shields, Mr. and Mrs. High Bidder, both dressed to the nines, were greeted by the speaker, who thanked them for their generosity to the symphony. The lunch proceeded apace, but the speaker noticed a chill in the air, inconsistent with the warmth suggested by the fact that they had paid to be in his company. Finally, Mr. High Bitter broke loose from whatever admonishment his wife had clapped on him before the meal. Asked by O'Neill how he had come to purchase the lunch, the fellow said, to tell you to your face what an SOB you are and to tell you to stop being so mean to the president. Thirty years later, the relationship at the heart of this amusing little anecdote is held up as a model of bipartisan cooperation. Is that right? Is it because of the fellow feeling between Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan that Social Security checks arrive unmolested in mailboxes? We commence part two of our investigation into this question. Just to remind you where we are, the O'Neill-Reagan relationship has been held up as a model to be emulated in our current partisan times. Specifically, the agreement the two men made to reform Social Security is the one thing being held up. If they could get together on such a volatile issue and forge a compromise, then maybe leaders today could use their map as a possible off-ramp from the partisanship that seems to have everything locked up in Washington. The conditions that make it seem impossible to find workable solutions to illegal immigration, unsteady entitlements, climate change, income inequality, and uneven access to health care. The partisan rhetoric in 1981 sure seemed just as tough as what we hear today. Here's Tip O'Neill giving his report card on Ronald Reagan in 1983. He only works... Three or three and a half hours a day. He doesn't do his homework. He doesn't read his briefing papers. It's sinful that this man is president of the United States. He lacks the knowledge that he should on every sphere, whether it's the domestic or whether it's the international sphere. That's about as irrevocable and tough as anything we hear top politicians say about each other today. Yet, despite the fact that Tip O'Neill said that about Ronald Reagan, they were able to work together. So maybe today's politicians can work past the tough things they say about each other, too. It's not likely. Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill shared a set of ideals about the American system and about the benefit of compromise. The political system also constrained them and their congressional partners, keeping them from lapsing into dead-end fights that led nowhere. To do nothing was not an option. What kind of option it is today. The environment, character of the leaders, structure, and incentives and the relationship between the president and the quote-unquote deep state are all different today. To ask for a replica of the O'Neill and Reagan relationship that led to the Social Security Commission recommendations is like asking someone to pick you a fresh bunch of daffodils in the middle of the Siberian winter. You can make the request, but unless the conditions outside are the same as those that applied in 1981, you're not going to get a fistful of daffodils. 
But let's return to our narrative to see if any of these claims are right. When we left our story, Ronald Reagan, the revolutionary conservative from California, had clobbered Tip O'Neill, the old guard liberal, from the opposite end of the country and the opposite end of the ideological spectrum. The victory came in the vote over the 1982 budget. Almost 70 Democrats from the House had voted with the president's proposal. Said Tip O'Neill, the leader of those Democrats, as that budget vote headed for its final tally in the Congress, O'Neill said, I can read Congress. They will go with the will of the people, and the will of the people is to go along with the president. Just to remind you, that's the leader of one party talking about the signature achievement of the leader of the other party. He's just going to let it go by. The Washington Post headline read, Shattered. Democratic coalition falls to pieces on first test with Reagan. Analysts, politicians, and pundits declared this wasn't just a singular victory. It was a historic one that kicked off a new era in American government. After 40 years of fighting New Deal liberalism, conservatism was at the top of the hill. And yet, the hangovers didn't even have time to flee the foggy revelers' heads before the vision of the Republican hegemony started to fade. What caused that reversal of fortune? Social Security. Perhaps the greatest achievement of that New Deal liberalism that was supposedly on the wane, Social Security, is what caused Reagan to stumble. Here's how O'Neill aide Chris Matthews writes about the turning point in his book Tip and the Gipper, When Politics Worked. This, of course, is Chris Matthews, the hardball host. He was an, he was an aide to O'Neill during this exciting period. And his book is a crackling one. It's a good read, just on its own terms, and also to, des- to describe this uh, Really interesting period. Anyway, here's Matthews. Five days after its big victory, and he's talking here about the budget the budget victory by Reagan. Five days after its big victory, the Reagan team committed an unforced error, which had the effect of invigorating O'Neill. The White House Task Force on Social Security issued its report. Now, what was the White House Task Force on Social Security? Well, The beloved retirement program, which mailed checks to 36 million recipients, was going broke. Input from payroll taxes that came from current workers was not going to be able to meet the outlays required to pay retirees. Reagan had put together this group, this internal group inside of his administration, and it was headed by Richard Schweiker, his 1976 running mate and the Secretary of Health and Human Services. This working group released a proposal for solving the problems of the Social Security shortfall by rejiggering the formula for those who took early Social Security retirement benefits. For those who chose retirement at age 62, instead of receiving 80% of the sum due to them, had they chosen till they were 65, which was the retirement age, they would, if the Reagan plan became law, now only collect 55%. So you retire early, you were getting 80%, Reagan wants you to get 55%. O'Neill saw this moment as his chance to act as a champion, not only of a specific program, but also to take a larger stand for his party's sense of fair play. And obviously it doesn't hurt when you align yourself with anything FDR did in global terms, but also specifically this piece of legislation that had such romantic national appeal from FDR's day. This social security measure gives at least some protection to 30 millions of our citizens who will reap direct benefits through unemployment compensation, through old age pensions, and through increased services for the protection of children and the prevention of ill health. O'Neill told reporters upon hearing the White House plan, I'm not talking about politics, I'm talking about decency. It's a rotten thing to do. 
The Democratic Party, he said, will fight this thing every inch of the way. It was, quote, nothing but a sneak attack on Social Security. He continued on. A lot of people approaching that age, 62, which again is the early retirement age relative to 65. A lot of people approaching that age have either already retired on pensions or have made irreversible plans to retire very soon. These people have been promised substantial Social Security benefits at age 62. I consider it a breach of faith to renege on that promise. For the first time since 1935, people would suffer because they trusted in the Social Security system. Now, Chris Matthews frames this as a big deal, uh, but he's a liberal. So what did it look like from the Republican side? Here's Jim Baker, Reagan's chief of staff, describing the victory on the first budget and the Social Security gambit that followed. When the Senate approved the budget, writes Baker, the Reagan revolution appeared to be unstoppable. Then we shot ourselves in the foot. Whoever called Social Security the third rail of American politics got it exactly right. So how did it happen? Well, Baker makes it sound like the president's green eye shade brigade tricked him with a black binder full of numbers. To balance the budget, his economists explained, they needed the savings to come from somewhere. Reagan had promised to balance the budget by 1984, his re-election year. Social Security and defense were the big items on the, the ledger, but defense wasn't going to come under the knife. In fact, Reagan was saying he was going to increase it, and taxes were being cut. So where was this deficit reduction going to come from? It was going to balance the budget by 1984. Well, the magic number had to come from somewhere. At first, they referred to that magic number really as a magic asterisk. Essentially, they fuzzied up the numbers, and the asterisk was a placeholder in the budget calculations that stood in, that placeholder did, for the painful, politically impossible decisions that had to be made in order to get the numbers to add up to balance by 1984. So it sort of amounted to, we'll cut taxes, increase spending, and yada, 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 the budget will get balanced. Reagan agreed in this meeting in May, after the budget had been passed, to the plan for Social Security that his green eye shade fellows had brought before him. Baker saw this and was, uh, he blanched. He was, he was uh, the blood drained from his face because he knew it would be a political disaster because, among other things, 64% of the people on Social Security were taking early retirement. So this, this would affect the majority of people who were on Social Security. To my distress, writes Baker, the president agreed with them, them being the number crunchers, without taking the matter under advisement as he usually did. Under advisement, of course, being uh, Baker's term for talking to him, Jim Baker, and listening. Baker is considered such a talented Washington player, it's striking to read an account where he says he was outmaneuvered in the first round. Of course, it's also possible that he's such a Washington player because he knows how to retell a story in his memoir that makes him look good and the green eyeshade fellows look bad. Baker says that knowing what a colossal danger this was going to be, he suggested a couple of atmospheric efforts to try to distance the president from it. So he told aides in releasing this plan, don't frame it as a White House plan per se, but frame it as a response to a congressional inquiry. Also, don't don't announce it at the White House. Go go to Baltimore. That's where the Social Security Administration is located. You can announce it there, and that'll try to take some of the stink off of this that might get on the White House. Secretary Schweiker, according to Baker, told the chief of staff that he knew what he was doing. He'd been a senator after all. He knew the plan would get a favorable reception. He predicted, in fact, that he could get Democrats on board. Plus, the president had signed off on these cuts. 
When it comes to internal White House battles, there's nothing more powerful than getting the president on board. This is why cabinet secretaries are always trying to sidle up to the president and get them to agree to things in private conversation that are still being worked out in the laborious White House process. But the reason you have a White House process, as we discussed in our H.R. Haldeman episode so many episodes ago, is that if you have the president freelancing, he can never know the ripple effects that his unilateral decisions will make in a gargantuan operation. As I feared, writes Baker, the blowback from the announcement was hot and heavy. Republicans complained about being blindsided and Democrats still smarting from their budget defeat blistered us. Even though the plan was not formally on the table, the Senate pre- preemptively voted against it 92 to 0. That's zero with a zero. William A. Niskanen, who served as Reagan's on Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors between 81 and 85, later called the May Social Security package, quote, the major domestic policy mistake of the Reagan administration, an extraordinary political misjudgment. Now, a quick aside about the power struggles inside of a White House. This shooting of itself in the foot that Jim Baker describes highlights a problem in all White Houses, the struggle between the political people and the policy people. Administration ideologues and policy experts lament the fact that they never get to accomplish in office what they thought they were going to be able to. And they're always blaming the political people because they say the political people are always placing politics above results. What this broken play highlights in May of 1981, though, is that no matter how good the ideas may be, if you don't get the politics right, it's not going to happen. After this snafu, Baker writes that the White House system for handling ideas was more streamlined, giving him more control over policy because his predictions about the political blowback were correct. Now, before we get too far into the narrative, I want to take a stab at trying to explain the conservative view about the size of government because that's what's undergirding all of this debate about Social Security and the larger conversation about what the conservative Reagan revolution really meant. So we know who O'Neill was protecting. We know what the FDR um, liberalism that he signed up to was about. He was protecting the widow and the orphan and the economically disadvantaged. But what made conservatives get out of bed in the morning? Well, government is the problem, Reagan famously said. Well, that tells us what he believed, but not why. The view behind this ideology was that liberalism of the New Deal had grown beyond helping those who were truly in need and beyond simply regulating general health and safety. And that that liberal government had lost the ability to determine which claims were valid for government remediation and assistance and which claims were not. So... It came into a position where it accepted, liberal government did, all government solutions to all problems. And this meant government was not deciding what was in the public interest, but what, but that they were deciding what was in the interest of the interest group that could make the loudest and most heartfelt appeal to get the money. So that changed from a system of more reasoned uh, priority making to a, to a system of special pleading. This is the conservative view. So this came to the head came to a head in fiscal policy because fiscal policy is about priority setting. So instead of making choices about limited resources based on how the money could be best allocated to do the most good, conservatives believe the fight for scarce resources became one based on who had the muscle, muscle to be determined by political trickery, regional claims and just general theatrics. Because their view was that limited government that had been a part of the framers conception and that 
and that Eisenhower had believed in and that previous presidents had believed in, that that limited government was an automatic sorting technique. And that kept decisions at the local and personal level so that the prioritization at the federal level was more reasonable. Uh, now what was the, now the situation was you had a set of larger decisions. You had more, more decisions to make, essentially, because the government was involved in so much more and that the criteria for evaluating each decision had gotten out of shape. So this is what this is was the conservative theory. Not but just it wasn't just about shrinking government. It was about fundamentally changing the way people looked for answers to the challenges of their lives, and that's why the Reagan revolutionaries were revolutionaries. And it also gives you some sense of the size of their appetite to fundamentally shrink the way in which shrink and change the way government addresses these problems. And that's why their opponents thought, yeesh, they've got such a, a huge worldview, it's going to gobble up Social Security. Of course it is. All right, back to our story. The backlash to the White House plan didn't kill the idea forever, though, because OMB director, that's Office of Management and Budget, David Stockman still had to make his numbers add up. And because he, he was trying to keep the president's campaign promise. And remember, those promises were big. Cut taxes, increase spending on defense, and balance the budget. This wasn't just something that the pundits did or didn't believe in. Wall Street didn't believe in it. And that could be a problem because, because if Wall Street didn't believe it, that meant interest rates would increase. Those who would purchase bonds would make bets about the growing deficit. And if interest rates increase, then that depresses economic activity, and that means less revenues, a higher deficit as a result. Now, the supply-side believers who were supporting – of whom Reagan counted himself a member – believed that you didn't need to be uh, such a deficit hawk. You didn't need to do so much cutting because the benefits of tax cuts would lead to greater growth, economic growth. That would mean more uh, revenue coming in in taxes because of the economic growth, even though the tax rates were lower. And that greater revenue would take care of the deficit problem for you. Well, the problem is that wasn't happening. So Stockman still had to have the numbers add up. And it wasn't just having the numbers add up because the Wall Street guys didn't buy the way the administration was handling its math. There were political reasons, too. Reagan's re-election was in 84. That's the year he promised that the budget would be balanced. And he had to move now, Stockman did, to take care of this social to, – to, to, to find the money. Because unless you did the hard decision-making in 1981 to deal with the acute challenges of the moment, you couldn't do those kinds of hard decisions in 1982 because that was going to be an election year. Now, where was he going to get the money? Well, he wanted to get it from Social Security because that's, you know, that's where the, the, the money is. Stockman also knew something else privately. That huge budget success that they'd all been celebrating in the Reagan White House, well, it had come, as you'll remember from episode one, from all of those Democratic votes, almost 70 of the bull weevil conservative Southern Democrats. Well, you know where that came from in part? It came from allowing those Democrats to be bought off with more defense spending, which is to say money they could boast about in their district. Here's Stockman in an interview with uh, journalist William Greider. They got a blank check, he said, describing uh, those Democrats from the first budget agreement. We didn't have the time during that February-March period to do anything with defense. Where are we going to cut? Domestic or struggle all night and day with defense? So I let it go. But it worked perfectly because they got so goddamn greedy that they got themselves swung way out there on a limb. When he talks about getting so goddamn greedy, he's talking about the defense spending that helped grease the wheels for those Democratic votes to support the the budget package. In September of 1981, the president wanted to solve all of this by giving a big speech. He'd given a speech around budget time and convinced people that his budget was a good idea. Why couldn't he do it again? 
Here's Stockman again. The president was very interested in the reform package, and he believed it was the right thing to do. The problem is that the politicians are so wary of the Social Security issue per se that they wanted to keep him away from it, thinking they could somehow have an administration initiative that came out of the boondocks somewhere and the president wouldn't be tagged with it. Well, that was just pure and naive nonsense. My view was, if you had to play this thing over, you should have the president go on TV and give a 20-minute fireside chat with some nice charts. You could have created a climate in which major things could be changed. To cool the president's jets from wanting to give a public speech and support these uh, Social Security cutting measures, James Baker, the chief of staff, invited Senate leader Howard Baker and Bob Michael, the House Republican leader, to the White House in September of 1981 to explain the political realities to the president about why this was such a bad idea to tinker with Social Security. This is essentially Baker giving the president a dose of the political realities that his fellows carrying the shiny abacuses under their arms weren't really focusing enough on. The president was tough to convince. He still wanted to go with this Social Security cutting package. But Senator Baker suggested a commission to study the issue. Reagan said he'd think about it. The specific issue they were trying to figure out here was – Okay, Social Security was going broke. Payroll tax receipts, which funded the program, weren't going to be enough to meet the outlays. And by 83, July 83, it was going to be a situation where uh, Social Security couldn't cover the outlays at all. So that meant trillions of dollars of debt over the next 75 years. The political problem is that compromise was needed and nobody wanted to be tagged with the decisions required to fix the situation. So the solution was knowable, right? Payroll taxes had to be increased bringing in more money. That's something Republicans didn't want. And benefits had to be trimmed, given a little shave. That shave was not something Democrats wanted to do. So the solutions were obvious, but nobody wanted to be on the hook for them. There was also a political context in which all of this took place, by the way. In addition to the tough budget fight in the spring of 1981, there had also been a raging fight in Congress. They'd just been through where Reagan had won his first big tax cut. So they were kind of weary by the fall of 1981. So... Reagan chose a policy solution that was really a political one. In December of 19, December 16th of 1981, the president signed Executive Order 12335, creating the National Commission on Social Security Reform, a 15-member group helmed by conservative libertarian economist Alan Greenspan, who was its chairman. The congressional leaders of both parties picked members, which included Republican Senator Bob Dole of Kansas and Democratic Senator Patrick Moynihan of Massachusetts. The reason this was a policy solution masking a political one is that the specific problem for Reagan was that an election was coming up and he was vulnerable on the Social Security issue because of that busted play in May of 1981. Democrats were hoping to get up off the mat using Social Security against the president and his party. Democrats were preparing to argue that the president's slashing tax cuts, which had helped the wealthy and the corporations, was all being done at the expense of old folks. The commission was named, and the reason this was a political solution was that it was announced that it would not report until after the election. So it's named in December of 1981, but won't report until after the election in 1983. Reporters asked about this immediately at the press conference that Reagan held on the 16th of December 1981 after he'd signed the executive order. Reagan (laughs) said, take it away, Alan. So Alan had to answer. And because why did Alan have to answer? Not because he was such a silver-tongued darling uh, on the political front in his public oration, but because he had the expertise from the economic. And so he could use uh, economic reasons for why this had to take a year. 
It's not the issue of the election, Greenspan said. It's the issue of the amount of time involved in endeavoring to come to grips with the issue. He explained a number of complex issues that had to be weighed in this year-long, more than a year-long process. Inflation, interest rate volatility, the relationship between Social Security and the private pension system, daylight savings time, the designated hitter rule, and I before E, except after C. Okay, so some of those aren't true, but... Greenspan continued, it's just going to be a job which is going to require, as best as I can see, something approximating a year. And I don't frankly think it can be done in the way in which the president has requested in less than that. I'm taking this uh, account from Sebastian Malaby's The Man Who Knew, Life and Times of Alan Greenspan. You'll notice the clever way in which he says, in the way in which the president has requested. Well, that allows him to, the president may have requested don't have this final report in until after the election. What this meant for David Stockman, though, was that the OMB director wasn't going to be able to get that short-term budget problem solved by getting a quick infusion of cash from the Social Security system to shore it up. So the budget promises Reagan made were going to be harder to fulfill. The commission also met a larger political need. Democrats and Republicans agreed that Social Security had to be saved. But as I mentioned before, they didn't want to do the tough things that were required. So commissions allow both sides to duck the blame for any hard choices that might ultimately be required. And here's how the dance step goes. The commission members are all very serious people. They do the math, turn the Rubik's Cube in every possible way, and then they emerge with a consensus solution. Lawmakers then cite the work of the experts who have exercised their careful deliberations when those lawmakers have to ultimately back the painful measures. Gives them a a little bit uh, of distance from from the pain that they're uh, asking voters to endure. This is one of the ways in which what they did in in 1981, 2, and 3 with the Social Security Commission is different than what could be possible today, particularly on the Republican side, because today there is a greater distrust of experts, particularly experts who give advice that leads to hard choices. Case in point, global warming. More than 300 scientists and 13 federal agencies in November of 2018 told President Trump that human activity is contributing to global climate change and that if it is not ameliorated, that there will be severe and devastating economic uh, consequences for the United States. In the past, a president might have tried to deflect the hard choices such a report would tee up by naming a commission. But President Trump hasn't even bothered with that. He has said he doesn't just he doesn't even believe the report itself. So the idea that a that a that a that a Greenspan like commission could work today uh, is implausible because you wouldn't uh, the political environment would not accept a hard choice report given the po- polarization of today. But we don't we're not even getting to that point. We're not even getting to the point where a commission brings forth a proposal that gets killed by today's partisanship. We're not even getting the commission formed in the first place. So this may be an idiosyncratic view that the president holds that his uh, that 300 scientists are wrong about this, but he would be politically incapable of holding this opinion if the larger political system were putting pressure on him. Or, he would, or, or again, he'd at least have to name a commission to look into the hard choices, and he's not having to. So this is not just about the president's own view on on climate change. This is a general feeling about the nature of political choice at the moment, and and that's true of lots of other issues uh, as well.
We think of these, this commission business as a modern phenomenon, but I was interested to see a Congressional Research Service report from 1931 that suggests that's not so. The use of commissions by President Hoover for various purposes, writes the Congressional Research Service, is supposed to be an innovation in federal practice, although research discloses that 492 commissions and similar bodies were established during the period from the time President Roosevelt succeeded to office in 1901 to the end of President Coolidge term in 1929, an average of more than 60 in each administration of the 20th century. So this idea of commissions as the escape route is not a new one. So what happened between the naming of the commission in the December of 1981 and its report in January of 1983? Well, three things at least happened. There were gargantuan budget battles in which, at one point, Reagan pushed a proposal to raise taxes. Yes, the tax-cutting Reagan realized the budget picture was not looking great, and so he uh, ganged up with O'Neill to pass a tax increase measure in which, during the debate in the House, O'Neill appealed to conservative Republican House members by saying, you should vote with the president who got you elected. And another thing that happened in this interim period with respect to this relationship between O'Neill and, and, and Reagan is that two men kept entertaining each other. Here's an account uh, from December of 1981 just before the commission was named. It's an L.A. Times story called Reagan Tells O'Neill to Stick It to Him. The story starts as follows. It was Tip O'Neill's birthday, and his archetypal enemy, who is a year older, invited him to the White House and wished him happy days as the two were given hand-carved and polished black horn walking sticks from their ancestral Ireland. Thomas P. Tip O'Neill, Jr. of Massachusetts, the Speaker of the House, got his cane first and announced that, quote, when a man has a stick of this type, a blackthorn, he is a man of dignity and honor. Give me mine quick, President Reagan said. Uh, and then he then continued, it's thought that these were probably what was used originally in starting the game of golf, he remarked. And then he turned the gnarled end of his cane to the floor of the Oval Office and took a practice swing. He then added, when you have any moments when you really would like to use that on me, here's a box of golf balls with my name on them. O'Neill then replied, you mean I can take my vent out by swinging at Ronald Reagan? Yes, the president said. I'll take advantage of that, the speaker promised. Happy birthday, Reagan replied. With that, the two Celts retired for a nonpartisan lunch during which O'Neill explained they would, quote, tell a few Irish stories to each other this noontime. So there you go. Two Irishmen having a yuck. And the third thing that happened in this period between December of 19. 81 in January of 1983 is that Democrats beat Republicans about the neck and head with claims that Republicans and their Republican president were going to carve up Social Security. They exploited the issue ruthlessly during the campaign. The existence of the bipartisan commission did not inhibit them in the slightest. In fact, Claude Pepper, a member of the commission, stumped tirelessly in two dozen states, even though he was 82 years old. This is why the commission was considered doomed effort, a doomed effort at the time. We look back now and think, well, things weren't as bad then as they are now. But when the commission was named, the situation looked dire. Almost immediately after it was named in December of 1981, both sides started trying to manage the outcome. The White House, just weeks after Greenspan gave that press conference, uh, put out a press release saying that the president did not want a solution that included tax increases. Instead, the commission should, quote, eliminate abuses and duplications which the Democrats took as code word for cuts in benefits. In response, Congressman Pepper 
sent Reagan a letter accusing the administration of trying to dictate policy to the commission. He suggested that Reagan rename the group the National Commission on Cutting Social Security Benefits. And Pepper sternly demanded that the commission be allowed to operate without preconditions. There were so many uh, independent opinions on the commission that Greenspan said at a February 1982 meeting of the 15 members, I don't expect to see a majority and minority report, he said. Knowing where all of you stand, I expect to get 15 reports, maybe more. I'm getting this wonderful TikTok of the commission from Nancy Altman's book, The Battle for Social Security from FDR's Vision to Bush's Gamble. Altman was Greenspan's assistant in uh, working on the Greenspan Commission. Then in May of 1982, Senator Pete Domenici, the chairman of the Budget Committee, announced that uh, he had a plan. And that plan to get the the budget headed towards balance included $40 billion in unspecified Social Security savings. And the administration endorsed that. Well, Democrats interpreted this development as, of course, another attempt to dictate the outcome of the commission. And the Democratic members of the commission then held a press conference accusing uh, the the administration of prejudging the thing. And remember, the makeup of this committee, five were named by the Republican leaders, five by the Democratic leaders, and five by the president. Well, that means essentially 10 members of the committee were, or the commission, were conservatives, or were at least Republican-leaning. In private, Patrick Moynihan from, uh, from Massachusetts lit into the Republicans on the commission, charging that the administration, quote, had terrorized older people into thinking that they won't get their Social Security. A Republican commissioner countered that Moynihan had, quote, demagogued this issue from front to back and top to bottom. Meanwhile, Reagan's getting attacked out on the campaign trail, and he calls it a canard. Here's a story from October of 1982 by uh, Francis Kleins in The New York Times. October 28th, President Reagan, fighting hard to retain majority power in the Senate, warned voters today that the Democrats were planning to, quote, broadcast wildly one of the most dishonest canards a charge that his administration was planning cuts in retirees' social security checks. This is a falsehood, Mr. Reagan declared as he undertook his final foray of the 1982 election campaign. Well, it didn't work. Democrats picked up a net gain of 26 seats in the House. And this was seen as quite revolutionary, of course, not as revolutionary as the nearly 40 seats Democrats took in the 2018 election. On November 3rd, 1982, the day after the election in the traditional press conference that is held uh, by presidents uh, after elections are held. President Reagan uh, said this to a question about Social Security and unemployment. Well, yes, I think that uh, seizing upon both of those, I said before, and I I will repeat, the charges that were made in order to try and frighten voters into voting one way, the charges that were made with regard to Social Security were absolutely without any foundation whatsoever. There was no truth behind them. There never was any secret plan written by us, and we're waiting uh, for the commission to come in with its recommendations on the needed reforms that must be made if that program is to remain uh, fiscally sound. Later in the month of November 1982, after the election, James Reston, the famed New York Times correspondent, put the Reagan and O'Neill relationship in context in the post-election season. Between now and at the end of the year, much will depend on whether President Reagan and Speaker Tip O'Neill get together and talk privately and seriously about the economic crisis of the nation. There already are some private signs that despite their ideological and political differences, they recognize that both parties are confronted by budget deficits beyond partisan control, 
which require compromise. He listed some of those reasons. The present year deficit is running over $100 billion. If there is no compromise between the president in the House and the Speaker on the Hill with the Democratic majority in the House of Representatives, the outlook is the recovery from the president recession will be slow. The piece concluded, they are an odd couple, but they have some things in common. Both know they don't have the votes in the new Congress to put over the programs they prefer. Both are coming to the end of a long political journey. The Speaker will be 70 on December 9, and the President will be 72 on February 6th. What they also have in common is an important chance to do something together in these next two years for the defense of the nation at home and abroad. The Speaker wants to leave behind a Social Security system that will endure, even if he has to amend its benefits. And the President probably wants to depart in peace and get control of both the economy and the nuclear arms race. Together they might even do it, and being Irish... They might even try. Two things are striking about this and why it's unlikely such a thing could happen today. The split in the parties, which meant that neither had the kind of loyalty from their party uh, to get anything done. Uh, that's one thing. And the uh, determination to do something about the budget because the view that the budget had to get balanced or the economy would be in trouble. There's not much talk about the budget anymore, even though the budget deficit has grown quite a great deal. Uh, in the first two years of the Trump administration, Republicans who used to talk about it um, first, second, and always in in political speech and in um, in Congress uh, don't talk about it very much anymore. Democrats uh, don't talk about it much either, except as a way to point out hypocrisy on the Republican side. And there is still the view that the obsession over the deficit is what made the recovery from the 2007 to 2009 housing crisis uh, a lot weaker and slower. There wasn't enough stimulus because of the excessive concern uh, and unnecessary concern, say some liberals, uh, about deficit reduction. So there's not a real appetite for finding solutions to a deficit problem in the way there was with Reagan and O'Neill. A week after the election, the commission held a three-day retreat at the Ramada Inn just outside of Washington in Old Town, Alexandria. There were about 100 reporters and 10 television cameras. The meeting was televised. Outside, the Gray Panthers, which is a radical group named after or, you know, echoing the name of the Black Panthers, picketed, chanting, no ifs and buts, no Social Security cuts. The meeting was held in public, but it was the behind-the-scenes work where the progress was finally made. Bob Ball, a staffer for Tip O'Neill, had been deputized to protect O'Neill's interests. Ball was a longtime Washington hand. He was a part of what the Trump people would call the deep state. He was somebody who had a lot of experience working with Congress and working with different members of Congress. Well, he pulled aside Senator Dole and said that the Democrats would agree to a delay in the cost of living payments for Social Security recipients. That was essentially a benefit cut, and he was saying Democrats would agree to that as a good-faith negotiating offer. I mean, it was not only helpful in negotiation, but it would have raised money to help cover the immediate Social Security shortfall. So then Ball had another meeting, again with somebody that he knew from having worked in Washington for a long time. He met with presidential assistant Dick Darman. Darman said, can we have a meeting that never took place? The two had worked together uh, during the Nixon years. Again, another advantage to having people who've worked in Washington before. They trust each other. They've known each other for a while. What Darman told Ball in this meeting is that Reagan wanted a deal. Still, they were pretty far apart uh, despite these back-channel uh, uh, negotiations. And again, they had to be back-channel because the, the commission's 15-member uh, deliberations were all held in public. Okay, but then... Senator Dole wrote an op-ed in which he said, quote, Social Security overwhelms every other domestic priority. But he said that through a combination of relatively mild steps, they could get to a solution. 
Senator Moynihan read this op-ed and went up to Dole on the Senate floor and said, let's, you know, if you really believe this, let's try one more time to get a compromise. So those two men meeting on the floor of the Senate called Ball and then they all then they called Greenspan and they were back at the back at the bargaining table. This sort of final stretch of negotiations, a key meeting took place at Jim Baker's house off of Foxhall Road in Washington, D.C., Ball had to make it to the meeting, and the white and and reporters had heard that the secret meeting was going to take place at his house. So his house was being staked out by reporters. So in order to sneak him out, the White House arranged to have a car meet him on the George Washington Parkway, which is a rather busy road, out of sight of the reporters. And so the car went there, and then the sixty-eight-year-old Ball snuck out the back door, traipsed down through the snow, and got in the car so that he could go away to this meeting in Jim Baker's basement uh, and try to. Um, uh, and, and try to f- and try to get to a uh, get to yes. Again, a lot of this TikTok is coming from Nancy Altman's book, The Battle for Social Security. So for days, the negotiations continued, and essentially it was still always over the same thing: the balance between benefit cuts and tax increases. Both sides were balking at the at the uh, at the size of each. So. They moved the negotiations to Blair House, which is across the street from the White House. Uh, and when one of the commission members on the conservative side started to balk, uh, Howard Baker, the Senate leader, sent him over to the White House and had the president put a little love on him and got him back on the beam. So they were getting close in the beginning, in, in mid-January to kind of to finally coming together with an agreement. But the president was still sore about the way it had been used in the campaigns. Here he is responding to a question on January 14th, 1983. No one that I know in this government has any intention of taking away the checks that these people are getting. I've said it over and over again, but somehow it does not get as much attention as the lies that have been told by those who want to portray us as somehow out to destroy Social Security. But despite the president's soreness, they did reach an agreement to basically have this mix of tax increases and benefit cuts. And some of the proposals were pretty amazing. One raised the payroll tax. And uh, also they had, uh, one of the recommendations was that Social Security benefits would be subject to taxation for the first time in history uh, with the proceeds of that taxation dedicated to shoring up the Social Security Trust Fund. Recently, Congress had voted overwhelmingly, the Senate unanimously in the House with only a, a dissenting vote, for a resolution that said benefits should remain tax-free. So this is a way in which something Congress said, no way, no how, hell no, uh, the commission was able to put on the table. And they also extended the solvency by raising the retirement age to 67 from 65, but they phased it in over a really long period of time. They had that delay in the cost of living adjustment that Ball had offered as the first kind of olive branch to dole. And they required government employees to pay into Social Security for the first time. So the the commission made its report. Then it went through Congress and Congress passed it into legislation. And these amendments to the Social Security system were made. The Social Security Reform Act did two things. It it led to the long-term solvency uh, of Social Security, not the permanent solvency, but but it, it solved the immediate problem and the problem for many years to come. And it also was an interesting political reversal for the president whose ideological opposition to social security had been a sort of part of his a true core beliefs. And so then in conclusion, we'll just remind why this was such a particular event at the time from which it's hard to see current analogs. The deal was put together by careful work, partially done by members of the deep state. Uh, it was it was able to happen because there was trust between Bob Dole and Pat Moynihan. Um, and again, 
when you think about Dole, Dole had been it was known as the hatchet man when he was Ford's vice president. He was a he was the one that talked about Democrat wars. He had been a serious political combatant, but he was still able to make a deal with Moynihan. Those two represented uh, a kind of view about politics and getting things done that I've been attributing to O'Neill and Reagan. But they, as members of the commission, were able to do some work together based on a general feeling about the desire to get something done and that compromise wasn't uh, wasn't a dirty word. You also had a situation which both sides cared at some level about the deficit, which meant that they felt like they were both working towards a goal they both believed in. And obstruction for the sake of, of obstruction and the benefits from obstruction and the popularity you would get by being booked on cable, by being a person who, uh, who, who said, hell no, we're not going to take it anymore. That didn't exist the way it does today. There was also a little luck. If it hadn't been for the initial May 1981 screw-up, Reagan wouldn't have needed the cover of the Greenspan Commission, which basically allowed him to try to say during the 1982 political year, look, the commission's working on it. And and what did the commission do? I mean, in some sense, Bob Ball, working for O'Neill, uh, was an inside player who could have done this without a commission. Moynihan and Dole, senators who existed in real life. But there was a convening nature of the commission. There was a way in which you name a commission, say you've got to come up with a report that puts pressure on the members who are in the commission to actually do something. And that uh, pressure that gets put on uh, when you have to meet a deadline um, uh, probably helped in corralling this activity, even though some of the individual activity itself didn't need a commission to uh, to get itself going. And I think there's also a lot in these accounts that gives uh, Greenspan some credit for continuing to create, and Baker for sure, for continuing to create an environment where people are trying to get back in the room and find solutions. So constantly sort of bringing people back and saying, uh, let us now reason together, instead of, while they are both partisans, Greenspan and Baker, instead of uh, using the process to gig people um, to to heighten partisan tensions uh, and and score uh, public political points. And of course, there were the two men who fought like hell but could remain friends. There's a coda to our tale. This is a tribute to O'Neill from President Ronald Reagan in 1986. Ladies and gentlemen, I think you know Tip and I've been kidding each other for some time now. And I hope you also know how much I hope this continues for many years to come. A little kidding is, after all, a sign of affection, the sort of things that friends do to each other. And Mr. Speaker, I'm grateful you have permitted me in the past, and I hope in the future, that singular honor, the honor of calling you my friend. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. Elizabeth Henson is knee-deep and neck-deep in the commission report, the C-SPAN archives, and actuarial tables. Of all of that good research that Brian brought forward and some that she even found on her own. And thanks to Alan Pang of CBS Radio, who helped make all of this possible on the CBS recording end. Thanks all of you out there to listening. Feel free, as always, to leave a review in the iTunes store. Spread the word. Tell your neighbors. Tell your friends. For now, I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.